O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Years ago, an author penned a graveyard scene where that character, a character bitterly replies, just about everywhere you look, now that you ask. And so it is. It surely seems that way, at least, as we consider the world around us. Death still seems to be a victor, often. Death certainly seems to have a sting. But as Christians, as God's people, those of us who are redeemed by our faith in Jesus Christ, or it would be better to say through our faith we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, we walk by faith, not by sight. If you walk by sight, death is always a victor. If you walk by faith, you have a completely different perspective. And what we're going to find in our text today for practical application in our lives is that the, the truth that we find in our text today about the future, it makes a difference right now. The right now that seems drenched in death, if we're honest about it. There is a, a source of truth, there is a body of doctrine, if I can use that word, that will strengthen us and inform us and influence us as we walk through and live in a culture characterized by death and by violence. How should we think about this, about the ongoing effects of death? And what should we believe about this? And how should we live? Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I encourage you to use a Bible. You can use a pew Bible. You'll find this text on page 1222. As we look at our text this morning, we're working our way through this New Testament letter to the Corinthian church written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what we find, you know, if you've been with us through the study or if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that this church was a mess, just a mess. They had been seduced and they had been influenced by the culture around them. And they had even given way to the culture around them to the extent that they were reinterpreting essential basic Christian doctrine, the, the apostles' teaching, which had come from Jesus Christ. And especially, we find in chapter 15, they had new and odd ideas about the resurrection, their own future bodily resurrection. Apparently, they hadn't gotten to the place where they were denying that Jesus came out of the tomb bodily, but they saw no use for that for their own future. And chapter 15 addresses this error. And what we find is the apostle writes and the Holy Spirit inspires and the Holy Spirit preserves. And therefore, we open the word today and we see that there is a sense in which when you veer off from the doctrine which God has delivered, you nearly inevitably will end up in deficient, defective living. That's what Paul is arguing in chapter 15. He links fundamental gospel truth, the resurrection of Christ, to an existential promise to us. And if we're going to look to that promise and live in light of that promise, it's linked to Jesus' resurrection, and it makes a difference in how we live. And our text this morning, at the end of chapter 15, is somewhat eloquent. It's almost poetic. It seems unusual in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Because, remember, we've said this, most of 1 Corinthians is Paul saying, what am I going to do with you guys? But at the end of chapter 15, he shifts into somewhat, uh, almost musical language, poetic language, 
of exaltation, of victory, of celebration. And then he follows it in the last verse with a very practical, down-to-earth, relevant exhortation that is still valid for us today. So with that by way of introduction, would you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. And I remind you, as I do every Lord's Day, this is God's Word for us today. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. God's Word says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's a primary assertion in this text. It's this, death's days are numbered. Death's days are numbered. And Perhaps few of us this morning gathered in this conservative Bible teaching church, perhaps few of us would dispute that. But the question I have for you is, what difference does this make? What difference should this make in the way we live our lives? The first thing we see in this text, beginning there with verse 50, is that something has to change. That's what verse 50 is about. Something has to change. Do you see it? I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood is a term which essentially means mortality. It's as we still are. This, this frail humanness that we live in, it's really all we know. The assertion that the Word of God gives us is that this mortality cannot inherit God's eternal kingdom. I don't believe there's an issue of moral failure here. That's already been addressed earlier in the chapter. Christ died for our sins. The point isn't here that we can't inherit the kingdom of God because we are sinners. That's settled in the gospel. But still, even though we're forgiven in the gospel, we won't be able to inherit the kingdom of God unless something changes to our bodies, unless there's some kind of transformation. Something has to change. As S. Lewis Johnson said, we'll not enter, he enter heaven as we are. We can't enter heaven as we are. And so here's there's a reference to receiving or inheriting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is essentially, basically, His reign, that which reflects Him. The kingdom reflects the King. And so therefore, first of all, the kingdom is holy. And so again, evil people who are still bearing the guilt of their sin, if you're here today and you've never received the forgiveness of your sin through Jesus Christ, you won't inherit the kingdom of God because God's kingdom is holy like He is. 
And therefore, that issue needs to be dealt with. But God is not only holy, he's also eternal, and he's immortal. And that's a reflection of the ultimate expression of his kingdom. His kingdom will finally get to the place where it is indeed eternal, where it is indeed immortal. And if you're going to inherit it, enjoy it, live in it, you have to get to the place somehow where you also are immortal, where you also are eternal, where you are in some way or another, let's say it this way, like Jesus. And so something's got to change. We see this earlier in the chapter. Look back once again at verse 40, would you? Chapter 15, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And remember what we said last week. The point of all of that is there's an appropriate body for an appropriate context. Different bodies are created and designed by God for different reasons. These bodies, this flesh and blood cannot live eternally and therefore something has to change and that change will look like the resurrection body of our lord there's an interesting i think it's incidental although with god nothing is really incidental but there's an interesting description from the words of jesus himself do you remember this it's in luke 24 uh, this is his appearance to the disciples after his resurrection. And it says, But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Why? Because they, had, they knew that he died. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Watch this. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. There's a whole truth there that we've talked about off and on. Your resurrection body will be you. It, 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 it's your identity, and yet it's different. There's continuity, but there's discontinuity. But look at what he says. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and blood. It doesn't say that, does it? It says flesh and bones. That's not an accident. Flesh and blood is a description of mortality, but now Jesus has come through death. He's been resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, and his resurrection form, and it, that's, this continues even today, his resurrection form is some level of physical body, but one that is in, unimaginable to us. But it is described by him as flesh and bone. You and I are not flesh and bone yet. We're flesh and blood. And we are going to need either a resurrection or a transformation. That's what we're going to need. We're going to need a resurrection if we've died when Jesus comes back, or if we're still alive when Jesus comes back, we're going to need a transformation. And that's what we find in this text. The first thing we see is that God guarantees a personal transformation for those who are His. A personal transformation. Individually, God promises a resurrection, a transformation. And there was some confusion, perhaps, about what about people who were still alive when Jesus comes back? So that's what we'll see. Pick it up in verse 51 and notice what the word says. Jesus says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now let me pause right there already, but let me just remind you, this is an Agatha Christie mystery. Uh, this isn't a puzzle that no one can figure out. A mystery in the New Testament, a mystery was something which previously had been inaccessible, had been covered, had not been revealed, but now God was revealing it to his own people. 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so a mystery, if you were listening to this, if you were in Corinth and you were reading this for the first time and you were awake, and you would have thought, wait a minute, this is something that God wants me to know that he's kept hidden until now. This is a mystery. It's one of the subjects that the Old Testament was silent on. And listen carefully, we could never work out these details on our own. I think we need to remind ourselves of that because most of us, we've been raised on these truths, many of us at least, for many, many years, and we forget how revolutionary they would have sounded to the ears or to the eyes of those who first heard or read them. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Here's another reference of sleep as a metaphor for the death of a believer. As one scholar said, it's only the body that sleeps. Uh, and this word is not used for unbelievers. When unbelievers die, there are words like perish, words like lost, words like under wrath. But when a believer dies, it's sleep. In Christ, death is no more harmful or permanent than sleep, one author said. So pick it up in verse 52. We, again, previously, verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. One, one version says the blink of an eye. At the last trumpet. The point is, it's immediate. You know the old trope, we, we even use it sometimes when we talk about heaven, we try to envision why someone is admitted to heaven. But the truth is, the idea that you're going to get stopped at the door of heaven and there's some kind of evaluation, this text says, the evaluation is done. Either when you, you die, it's already been determined, or when Jesus comes back, if he comes back before the end of this service, there, there's not going to be any kind of process of, well, we're going to have to figure out what their life was like. You're either lost or you're saved. And if you're saved, you're covered with the blood of Jesus. And this is what Paul is arguing here. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to be that quick. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Watch this. The dead will be raised imperishable, and that's what he's been arguing the entire chapter. But here he clarifies, and we, in other words, implying if indeed we are alive. It's not that Paul expected with absolute certainty he would be alive. He's arguing for the sake of all who would read the word of God. We who are alive, when Jesus comes back, we will be changed. And all of this is unpacking what he's already said. Glance back up with me for just a moment at verse 23. He says there, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. That's the order. Uh, look down in verse 44. This is what has to happen. It is sown, the body is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's the change that has to take place. That's the transformation that has to take place. And so we really see this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to turn over there, if you would. Uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, you have to look at this text when you read these, this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It, this is the other text that clarifies the details of the rapture. If you're using a pew Bible, we're talking about page 1257 in your pew Bible there. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at this. By the way, this was written four to five years before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. That may confuse some. If you're new to Bible study, you think, well, wait a minute, that's to the, in the Bible, it's to the right, not to the left. So how is that after? But the books are not arranged necessarily by chronology. 
And you need to recognize that when you're studying the Word of God. So 1 Corinthians was written probably around 55 A.D., but 1 Thessalonians was probably written around 50 or 51 A.D. So this was written first. What Paul was telling the Corinthian believers, they should have already known. He'd already taught it. He undoubtedly had explained it to them. But they were, in some sense, they were ignoring it or denying it. Look at what we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Very familiar text, but it's worth considering. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. There it is again. Death of believers. That you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians has dealt with that. Jesus rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Let me just stop right there for a minute. That parallels the idea of a mystery in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. God revealed this to Paul. He didn't create it himself. He didn't didn't sit down with the book of 1 Samuel and study 1 Samuel and say, oh, I think I have a new revelation. It was Jesus likely himself that had taught this to the apostles or even more likely because of the specific language that Paul uses, the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way had revealed it to Paul. It was a word from the Lord. And here it is. It's this timing of what we call the rapture. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. There it is again. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Someone said, why is it important that the dead rise before us? Someone said, because they're six feet lower than we are. I don't know if that's the case. That's been said in the past. Really, we don't know. But this is the order. That the dead will be raised, the the believing dead, and then we will be changed. Look at it. The dead in Christ, the end of verse 16, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We we will be raptured. You say, well, it doesn't say raptured. It says caught up. The Latin translation of the Bible used the Latin term from which we get the word rapture for this phrase, caught up. You want to know, somebody will say to you sometimes, well, rapture's not even in the Bible. Just grin at them and nod your head and say, caught up is. And that's what we're talking about. We will be caught up together with them, glorious reunion, there's a whole sermon there, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, even a more glorious sermon that will be with the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, very carefully, very quickly, let me say this. If you believe the Bible and you're a Christian, you believe in the rapture. You just might not have the timing right. You might have a misunderstanding about what the kingdom looks like. You might have a misunderstanding about how it all fits together. And there are good, godly people that have all kinds of different ideas and opinions and interpretations about that. I can't resolve that issue for you. I I know what I believe. I think when we get to heaven, you'll find out that I was right. (laughs) But the reality is simply this. The rapture is going to happen, and when it does, the primary promise of this is that it will represent a personal resurrection for those who are already dead, or if we 
are fortunate enough to be alive, a transformation that is necessary for us to inherit the kingdom of God. And therefore, you go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15, and you see a summary statement so far in verse 53, where he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And what he's arguing is that's what's going to happen. For the dead in Christ, their perishable bodies, which likely have completely perished in a physical sense, God, through his creative power, will raise them to imperishability. And those of us who are alive, our mortal bodies, which left to themselves, if Jesus doesn't come back, we're going to end up in the same kind of hole. But if we're alive when Jesus comes, we will be transformed. A personal transformation. Listen, part of what's going on here is you were created, you were designed to be embodied. The idea that the real us were just some spirit and, and our eternal existence is, is going to be floating around as a spirit in, eternally, in eternity doesn't reflect the teaching of the Word of God. You were designed and created by the Spirit God, the God of heaven who the Bible says is spirit. His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human form, and in doing so, let me say it this way, acknowledged it and blessed it, and he retains some sense of humanity, even now, and represents what we also will enjoy and experience eternally. This is the plan and purpose of God. He is making all things new, including these mortal bodies. And can you think about that for a moment? It means no more frailty. No more frailty. No more fears about what that next test is going to say. No more uncertainty about our loved ones and their safety. No more wondering as we grow older and older, has our life been worth it? What is this about? Frailty is gone. And also, although I don't think it's the main point of this passage, but it's clear in Scripture, our moral frailty is gone. Our sin is gone. Our, our immorality, our, our yielding to temptation, all of that is removed. Think about it. We will still be us when we experience this personal transformation. We will be in a transformed body that then will be fit for our eternal home. But we need to ask ourselves, what will that home look like? And that's the other issue that Paul addresses here, beginning in verse 54. Because not only does God guarantee a personal transformation, He also guarantees a creational transformation. It's not just for us personally, but systemically God's going to make a change. There's going to be a systemic, a cosmic, a creational transformation. And that's surely needed. One of the old preachers said it this way, Since the fall, death struts. In pride, death struts through the Creator's creation. As though death is the most powerful. And sometimes our hurts and our fears and our difficulties, we sense that, don't we? 
Something's got to change, not just for us personally, but for the Creator's world. It's got to be transformed. It's got to change. Have you noticed how much the culture of death is now, we just swim in it these days. Do you know that they said that last weekend, Americans spent over $8 billion on Halloween decorations. And a significant amount of those, this is not a screed against Halloween, that's not the point, but a significant amount of those were ghoulish and demonic and exalted death to the extent where we hardly notice it anymore. As you drive through your neighborhood, you remember last weekend, how many houses had, had images out front of, of gravestones and of skeletons and maybe even of demons and monsters. And you don't think that affects the culture? You don't think that affects the children? One of our dear families had a circumstance went over to their house one day, and they were having a birthday party, I think, something. And it turns out there was a party at the home next door. And we asked kind of what was, we, we knew they knew their neighbors. And we asked what was that event, and it was, well, it was essentially a death party because their neighbor was going to take her life. And so her loved ones planned a party for her as she prepared to take her life. You see, death surrounds us. It is systemic. It is assumed. Its effects are everywhere. And that can't be left unaddressed by the God of creation. And so look at what the text says. Beginning in verse 54. It's not just a personal transformation. There is a creational transformation in view. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, it hasn't happened yet, but when it does happen, that'll be the effect. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And then there's a taunt against death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? From Isaiah 25 and also Hosea 13. And then Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And by the way, that's a theological aside that he doesn't even address, but he, he cares about it deeply. Well, what does it mean that the, the power of sin is the law? The, the Bible says, especially Paul himself wrote in, in Romans chapter 7, that the law is good and holy and just. But you see what happens, watch this carefully. This is how depraved your sin is. Your sin is so depraved, your built-in DNA of sin, it's so depraved that the good and holy and just law that God gave, your sin takes that and uses it as empowerment for sin itself. That's how, that's how depraved you are. You say, well, I don't, I don't see how that works. Well, let's say you're, you're walking along on a sidewalk and you see a sign that says, stay off the grass. Isn't there just for a moment a temptation to step on the grass? Wet paint, do not touch. I'll tell you, this, a few years ago I recognized this back before they passed such robust laws, but they were starting to do so about cell phone use, especially in school zones. And it was astonishing to me that every time I drove, literally, I'm not exaggerating, every time I drove through a school zone, I remembered that law and I wanted to make a phone call. I remembered I've got to text somebody, I've got to call somebody. Because that's what law does. Law sets the standard, 
Sin and disobedience rebels against that standard. And so in a sense, the law inflames sin. The law is still holy and good, but it inflames sinfulness. This is what Paul is saying. It's got to be addressed in some way or another. Now, watch the reasoning here. Let me walk you through it. Here's the reasoning. Sin is real. Sin exists. Remember the Westminster Catechism. We quoted it a couple of weeks ago, a paraphrase. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the revealed will of God. That's what sin is. So sin is the stuff you leave out and the stuff you do. That's sin. And it's everywhere. So sin is a reality. The the second argument that Paul's making, this is his train of logic. He doesn't spell it all out, but this is the foundation of what he's saying. The, The second aspect of that is that there's this radical, desperate power of sin. You see its effect most dramatically in death. You go back to the creation story, which we'll get to in, in January as we begin our walk through the book of Genesis. You go to the creation story and you find that death comes because of sin. That when there was sin and disobedience, immediately death follows. And death is the primary indicator of how desperate sin is. And so sin exists, and because sin exists, death exists. And even though personal sin and guilt has been dealt with on the cross, God is still waiting to deal with the cosmic effects of physical death. The the creational, the systemic effects. Sin has been dealt with. Death will be dealt with decisively. And listen, death doesn't just need to be removed. Death needs to be defeated and destroyed. It needs to be radically shattered And that's what will happen on that resurrection day. Where it appears, if you're just an outside observer, it appears that death is still victorious. Death still holds sway. Death still has victory. Death's sting is still powerful. And one day God says, not so fast. Not so fast. Death's days are numbered. Now, perhaps you're here today, maybe you're a skeptic, or maybe you're just very inquisitive. And you're wondering, well, why does death exist at all? I mean, why did God allow death to be the manifestation of sin? There's a whole other question about why God allowed sin, and that's a legitimate question as well. But but what about death? Why does it exist? Well, there's at least two reasons. Death exists, first of all, to reveal sin's sinfulness. If, If the consequences of sin were a bruised finger... How seriously would we take our sin? If the consequences of sin were just hurt feelings or just a a mode of disappointment, how seriously would we take our offense against God? You see, God is infinitely holy. Sin is an infinite offense against that infinite God, and therefore the penalty for it must show its significance. And if you haven't yet felt the devastation of death, You will. You have a loved one and you watch them suffer. Or perhaps they suddenly die without any expectation and you scar the earth and you stand beside the earth as their remains go into into the ground. That's the devastation of death. And at the very least, what God is saying in allowing death, indeed ordaining that death be the product of sin, is look how bad sin is. 
along with that, not just as a demonstration, but as a punishment for sin. This does not mean that every sin we commit results in death. It means the existence of death is a result of rebellion and sin. That's the way God has designed His creation to work, and so therefore death punishes sin. I would say there's one more reason, is that God then uses death in the death of Jesus Christ to conquer sin, even though we wait for that fullness right now. Listen, the the point is this. Death is not the natural conclusion to human life. It is not God's creational intent. It is an anomaly. Death is an alien invasion. It's the fruit of a bitter rebellion against the Creator King. It's an insurrection. That's what death is. Every death is an insurrection against the good Creator of the universe. But also, before we move on, death is a defeated foe. And if that's true, if you believe this, if that's true, we should fear less. Remember that passage in Hebrews chapter 2? Speaking of Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is a sense in which all of our lives we've been fearing and running from death, right? But we don't need to live that way. According to that that text, according to this text in 1 Corinthians 15, we should fear less. We should fear death less. In fact, we should be fearless because we have the victory. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at it. All of these truths provide a foundation. The fact that God guarantees personal transformation and He guarantees creational transformation It provides for us a foundation of at least two things. The first is this. All of this is a foundation for what we are to believe. For what we are to believe. Look at 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is back again to the grace of God which dominates this chapter. It began with the goodness of the gospel where Jesus died for our sins. That's His grace. By grace, it's God's plan, it's God's initiative, it's God's work, it's to God's glory. So this is the reason we say thanks to God. We don't deserve it, we can't earn it, but it's God's mercy and His grace, His love for us. And this is all ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the victory we're talking about now and then. We have it already, but there's a sense in which we don't have it yet. It will come in its fullness and listen, here's, here's the problem. This is what the Corinthians were missing, and I think it's what we miss too, is that so often we settle for lesser things. So often we settle for lesser things. We think this world is what matters. We think this world is where we put down our roots. We think this world and its pleasures, and let's face it, we are blessed people. We have this incredible affluence. We have, we have this unbelievable comfort we, we have extended life because of God's good gifts and common grace in medicine and all of these things. And so we, we think that this must be heaven. What a foolish thought. And yet we live that way. As though this is what we live for. And we're no different from the Corinthians. They didn't care about their future bodily resurrection. They wanted to be looked at with favor by the people in their city. We settle for such lesser things. 
We expect too much out of this life. There's a theological term for this. It's an overly realized eschatology. And you know, I, let me just say this. I think some of us, because of the, the way that eschatology is looked upon today, the things that we have believed, particularly the positions that this church has held now for 50, 60, 80 years, those positions are mocked in such a way that we're kind of embarrassed of them. And so we kind of live life and say, well, you know, we, do, we don't care about the future. We're just going to be faithful here. That didn't work for the Corinthians. And it won't work for us. We need to understand what God is doing now, is grounded in what he did then, but is linked to what he will do in the future. We neglect the resurrection promises. We neglect to think about eternity. We forget the fact that this world will be our eternal home, a new earth. We forget all of this. And we come to think of this as home. And I've reminded you over the last several weeks, but give me one more opportunity on this day of prayer for the persecuted church. There are believers around the world that would be mystified at our attitude that we think this is home. Because they put their lives on the line in confidence and in faith for what God will do in eternity. And they have no other choice if they're going to be faithful. And in the meantime, sometimes our biggest dilemma is where we're going to eat dinner on Friday night. All of this is a foundation for what we are to believe. And then that leads, finally, to a foundation for how we are to live. In verse 58, you see the word, therefore? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Don't miss this. It, it's not grin and bear it. It's not, okay, you've convinced me this life is yuck and God's promises are all for the next life, so I'm just going to... No, there's an abundance. There's, there's a sense of joy. There's a sense of freedom. Even given all of the mess and all of the heartache and all of the difficulties we still deal with with death, we can still live an abounding life, an abundant life. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And it's interesting. We can't really tell if this is a summary to what we call chapter 15, all of his resurrection teaching. Or maybe this is a, a summary to the whole book. And chapter 16 is kind of some postscripts. We'll look at that next week. I wonder if it's not a summary of the Christian life. When you have a worldview that recognizes that God's good gifts, indeed, they're here and they're now, but ultimately their goal and their focus is eternity, it will affect the way you live and affect the way you serve. It will affect the way you work. Listen carefully. Here's the logic. What you believe influences how you live. We've already seen this in chapter 15, in the middle of this doctrinal discourse in chapter 15. Remember where Paul says, stop sinning. How's that for a philosophy of biblical counseling? He just sits down with the Corinthians and he says, stop sinning. But it's in the context of their, the, the strange things they had come to believe were influencing the way they lived. And so we're called to be steadfast and immovable too often we are movable, are we not? Like the Corinthians. For Ephesians 4 talks about being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Sometimes that's us in our daily lives. 
the life of the pastor. You give me the privilege of soaking in this text. And you would think I would live a life that was steadfast and immovable. And I won't give you the details, but it doesn't work that way. It's a daily decision. There is this, this battle that we fight. It's, it's an ongoing battle. It's called here labor. It, it, it's, it's hard work. But our labor is not in vain because of these glorious promises of eternal significance. The labor is the work for that which lasts forever. He's already talked about it in the book. In chapter 3, he says, Each one's work will be manifest. For the day of the Lord will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The point is the permanence. The labor that's for the Lord will last. The labor that's not for the Lord is ethereal and meaningless and will pass away. There's this curse of temporal utilitarianism where we ask the question, what's the immediate usefulness of this? Okay, I'm going to obey as long as there's an immediate payoff. Or I'm going to sacrifice as long as I, as long as I can see some immediate benefit. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, wait a minute, what do you believe? Because what you believe influences how you live. And if you live with the fact that God has these things under control and that God sees all things and you're laboring and investing on things that are of eternal significance, not merely temporal significance, and God is pleased and God gets the glory. And none of it is in vain. So we have the promise in Hebrews chapter 6 where the word says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. So there's that grace gift concept that we've seen through 1 Corinthians as well. You use your gifts to serve the body. And when you do, God is pleased, and that doesn't pass away. We're studying this in our equipping hour. Dave's teaching through a theology of work, the way that we invest our labors. What Paul is saying here is get your theology right. You get your theology right, it influences how you live. Now, I need to clarify that. I don't want to imply that as long as your theology is right, your living will be right. I just confessed. I think my theology is pretty right. I still struggle in my living. All of us do. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. As long as you get your theology right, you're not going to have any sin problems. But it is a guarantee that if your theology is twisted, it's almost impossible to end up in godly living. It leads to defective living. And Paul is trying to correct a problem in the Corinthian church. One of their problems, one of their many problems. One of their many problems is they had been so seduced by the world around them that they loved this worldly idea of this life is what matters. Forget about the resurrection. And Paul said, listen, that's affecting how you're living. This sting of death, it still seems like it's pretty much everywhere, Right? but we live by faith. We're not in a renewed Eden yet, but God is kind. We get foretastes. We get glimpses of what His ultimate kingdom will be. And we especially experience that in worship, in Christian worship as we gather together. We experience it at the table when we remember His grace to us in His Son, Jesus Christ.
So here's how this works. Truth provides a foundation for our beliefs. Now watch this carefully. With this, I'm pretty much through. Trust me, right? Truth provides the foundation for the things you believe. What you believe influences the way you think. What you think determines your feelings. And your beliefs and your thoughts and your feelings combined to affect your will and your decisions. Now, on every level, you've got choices to make. But it's important that you get the starting point right. That's Paul's concern. And these truths are a foundation for what we are to believe and also for how we are to live. Here's your takeaway today. What you believe influences the way you live. What you believe influences the way you live. And how does that happen? Well, ultimately it happens through the gospel. That's where Paul began chapter 15. He says, I remind you of first importance of the gospel, that sin has been dealt with through the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll remember when we come to the table this morning, that the ground of all of it is the fact that though you and I are worthless rebels because of our sin, the God of heaven loved us so much that he sent his son to pay the penalty in death. And then he conquered death and resurrection, and therefore we have a guarantee of personal transformation, and that's not all. One day there'll be a systemic creational transformation. And where does it all turn from? It all turns from a hill on Judea, in Judea 2,000 years ago, as a rabbi from Nazareth, who was the perfect son of God, and yet also our brother gave his life in a bloody death to satisfy the righteousness of God. One scholar said it this way, the sting of death has been drawn, but at such a cost. The sting of death has been drawn, but at such a cost. Let's pray together. Father, what we believe matters for all kinds of reasons. But as we've seen this morning with the Corinthians, what they were believing was affecting the way they were living. Help us, Lord, not to make the error of thinking that if we believe the right things, it will determine holiness. We know that doesn't happen. But we surely will not get to holiness and faithfulness that pleases you if we begin believing the wrong things. So give us a firm foundation that we might know what we are to believe and that then we also might know how we are to live. And help us remember in these moments that the ground of it all is not our best intentions and not our effort, and not our sincerity. The ground of it all is on a rugged Roman cross where the Son of God shed His blood that sinners might be declared righteous. And then 
three days later conquered death in his powerful resurrection and guarantees the same for us. Remind us this morning that it comes back to the bread and the cup. We pray all these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.